Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. So welcome everyone today to The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, and today we have our guest again. I hate to even say you're a guest, Kirsty, because you're here with me, and we have several podcasts with you on the podcast, but a guest, Kirsty Miles. And just introduce yourself again, if you would. Sure. Um, Kirsty, I'm a physical therapist. I've been with PDT for nine years, and I am the team lead over in the Southern Pines area, managing the four contract sites we have and the Southern Pines office. And we have about 12 therapists over here on Purple Team. So we stay pretty busy. Yes, very busy. And today we're talking about knowing normal. We're doing a couple of different podcasts in this grouping, but today is gross motor knowing normal. And I'm excited about this because I love to talk about just normal development and just actually development of kids if you're, you know, in a nerdy therapy kind of way. I think this is fun to nerdy therapists. And so, I just lumped you in that category, but I hope you're good with that. But anyway, one advice that I had from a professor in graduate school a long time ago, he said to me, and I really had never occurred to me, of course, I was like young 20-something, and I was in a school to be a speech-language pathologist, and he said that you've got to know normal. So he said, you, know, you need to go spend time at a daycare, know what normal kids do. And he even said it, even though I was a graduate school to be a speech therapist, but he said it even like, you know, see how they run, see how they interact, see how they play together, hold normal babies, feed normal babies, just play with normal kids, you know, and just to see overall development, speech and language, but gross motor. And I think, Kirstie, you know, when you have kids, then you kind of get to know normal, you know? Yeah, for sure. So talk to us a little bit about normal developmental milestones. How do we know what normal is? Well, first, where I like to start, and I think where PTs generally get their knowledge base is from standardized testing. So when we have a parent come in with a concern, we obviously go to our standardized tests. Because when they say standardized, basically they take a group of children and they test them on certain criteria and they say, well, you know, this many children performed at this age. So this is what they're doing. So that's how they get these norms, what they call norms. And we use the Peabody a lot, the Mm -hmm. Peabody Developmental Motor Scales for gross motor testing and fine motor testing. There might be other standardized tests we use, but for the population of kids we're testing in that birth to five range, and particularly we're focusing on birth to three, that's where we're going to kind of talk about our data from and pull our data from. And I think when we're looking, we chose the birth to three range, and I think what's so important about that is being able to get in those early years where you have the most optimal time to kind of reroute the pathways in the brain mm-hmm. and make really good motor changes and develop new connections and new pathways for learning motor movement. So that's one of the areas that I think is of particular interest when we're talking about the birth to three. So that's a good place to start is looking at those developmental tests. And then not to take or discount observational assessment, because even though a child might be doing something at these set stages and ages, we really have to use our clinical judgment and our clinical skills to look at and assess the quality of movement. Yes, Um, amen. I know you run into that a lot with speech, too, Mm because I think that's one of the areas of mentoring new therapists is, yeah, they might be doing that, but what's their quality? 
when I think we get so caught up sometimes and at first, especially administering the test correctly, scoring it correctly, really using the test that sometimes I think you forget to use your, this kind of sounds bad, but to use your brain, you know, so it's got to be a mix of your clinical, what you know, that's why it's important to know normal, what you know, and that standardized assessment. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you're right, the Peabody is the main thing we use, but are there other tests we use? Is that the Not main thing? Not so much other ones that we're using. We do see a lot of test scores coming in from the Battelle or the Bailey. Oh, Those yeah. are some other common motor ones yeah. that get used, but we stick to the Peabody. I like the way it's broken down into the three areas, the gross motor, the fine, uh, the gross motor and the fine motor, and then the three subtests for gross motor, which is the stationary skills, the locomotor skills, and then ball play. And I think what we're finding, too, is it has to be done in a standardized way. So when you're dealing with a child that does have cognitive delays, if they mm-hmm. can't participate in that part of the test, then there is something more going on. Yeah. And while it's not necessarily entirely appropriate maybe to use the Peabody for a child that has autism, it is one way to document that, you know what, they're not even able to participate to achieve a standardized test score because we can't administer this in a standardized way. And then the ball play kind of comes into play because, you know, if a child can't reciprocate play through ball play and engagement and interaction, they're not going to be able to score well. Right. And, you know, insurance is they so badly want a standardized score mm-hmm. that, you know, we're able to present something in that regard. Well, and it does help justify, because even if you can't score it, you know, some kids, when you give them the test, there's, like you say, with the kids with autism, they may not engage in the ball play portions of the Peabody because they socially aren't interested in other people and wanting to interact with them. You know, they have the whole pragmatic impairment. So you're right. So that gives you a sort of a window into the whole child or, a, you know, an opportunity to sort of think, step back a little bit and look, okay, there's more going on here than maybe just a gross motor or fine motor delay or something, you know. So really what we're basically saying is there's the good use of standardized assessments and the use of those to test kids, but then also the clinical assessment and not forgetting about the therapist, what they know about development and what they know about children and looking at the whole child. So you use both. Yep. And we have to take into consideration their tone, their quality of movement, Mm -hmm. Just the neuromuscular piece in addition to where they are gross motor wise. Yeah, exactly. And so if you started listening to this podcast and you're thinking, oh, this is just gross motor development, I really don't need to listen to this, it doesn't affect me, I'm a speech therapist or occupational therapist or uh, some other kind of something, another discipline somewhere else that I haven't named. Actually, we're talking about the whole child and all development. So knowing what normal development motor for normal gross motor development is, is imperative to understanding speech and language development and social development and fine motor development and vision and hearing, it all goes together because it's the whole child. And the whole child is what we really focus on here at Pediatric Developmental Therapy, overall assessments of the whole child. I never look at a child's speech and language that I don't think about how are they moving, what are they doing with their hands? Of course, I look at hearing to see if there's hearing issues, but do I think they're seeing correctly? I mean, I'm not a physical therapist or occupational therapist. I can't diagnose or evaluate or treat any of that, of course, but I understand what normal development is. I think any discipline or any professional working with children will get a lot out of hearing what normal motor development is. I agree. And 
being able to coach a parent in what to go to their pediatrician with also. Yes, exactly. And it sort of gives you more information in your toolbox, you know, your imaginary toolbox there, so that when you're out somewhere at a child's house or you're seeing a child in the clinic for therapy or school or whatever, you kind of know to think, huh, I think this is something I should ask the PT about or the OT about, or like, at least for consultation, you know. So if you've started listening and you think, oh, this is going to be about motor development, stick with us because we're going to bring it home for the whole child. And I'm here, so of course I'm going to throw in a little speech and language something, maybe, I don't know, tidbit. Okay, so that's kind of a good overview of assessments and using clinical assessments, standardized assessments. So speaking of knowing normal and what normal development is, Kirsty, why don't we just start with context of normal and gross motor milestones. And so thinking about kids who are zero to three years of age, so let's start with just the one to two month range. What's normal? Okay, when you're looking at an infant, obviously the majority of the time, they're pretty much sleeping, (laughs) eating and sleeping. That's the majority of what they're doing in the one, two-month range. But some of the things that you're going to look for are that when they're on their back, do they turn their head side to side? And also when they're on the tummy, that they can lift their head and rotate from cheek to cheek. And what you're looking at there are survival skills. So very early on, they have these primitive skills, and it's all for breathing and airway clearance. Mm -hmm. So that if their face were to come in contact with something, they would be able to lift their head, turn their cheek. And then you're looking as far as movement, that when they're lying on their back, that they're starting to kick their legs and alternate kicking. So they're bringing their legs up off the surface and doing an alternate kick. And then most people don't know that when you place a child in weight-bearing at two months of age, that they will start to step, like they're going to take steps and walk. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that parents are like, whoa, they're already stepping. That is a normal reaction, and that will integrate and go away after two months of age, and then it'll come back later when they're learning to walk at around nine months. And it's interesting in seeing the normal baby, 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 you know, this age, um, and how those, the quality of those movements and kind of how they do it compared to a preemie baby. I have the experience of working with preemie babies before I had the experience of working with normal babies. And once I saw normal, because I, you know, like I said about the professor told me to go to daycare and I heeded some of his advice, but because, you know, I was 20 some and thought I knew it all, I didn't really have to listen to everything. You know how that goes. And so then once I realized I should have listened to this guy who really knew a lot, I had children. So anyhow, it's interesting, the quality, like a normal baby quality, the way a baby born at full term with no significant medical history compared to even just a baby born just a few weeks early. It's very different quality. Yeah. And I think the important thing to note there is normal gestation is between 38 and 40 weeks. Mm-hmm. So anything before that, they might not be ready to leave the womb. Neurologically, they're just not fully developed. So when you think about it, and we treat the whole child, so as a physical therapist going in to see a baby, we're looking at their sensory system. Can they calm? Do they tuck into that little fetal ball? Or if their arms are all out kind of back behind them, you know, they're in this state of disorganization. So before you can even work on and address motor development, you've got to really look at their sensory system and are they prepared and ready to take in their environment. 
Yeah, because that really, even at the get-go, if you really do think about the whole child, that's their experience. That's their normal, that child's normal from day one to day whatever you see them. So if they haven't had even the normal just lifting their head up off the bed and moving their cheeks side to side, it just builds and builds and builds. Okay, kind of go to the three to six-month-old range. This is what I call having had four children. I call the zero to three-month stage like survival mode for like everybody in the house. Like I don't care. That, to me, zero to three months is not for wimps. And I know that has nothing to do with normal motor development, but I was just putting it out there. If you got it like a one-month-old, it's tough. But anyway, go ahead. Go to three months. See, at three months, that's what I call like, oh, happy day. Okay. All right. I am going to survive. When you're finally getting like three hours of sleep in a row. Yes, yes. Like, and all, you and you're like, oh, my gosh. You feel human. <laughs> yes. When you're like, yes, I can survive. I will survive. I can do this. All right. Yes. Three months. Completely agree. So, from a motor standpoint, they're starting to hold their head up. When you're looking at a three-month-old baby, I'm talking about the typical development. Mom's able to start doing some stuff around the house with baby on her shoulder or dad, too. And you can kind of start to multitask a little bit because they're starting to hold their head up a little bit. Mm -hmm. They're not in that need to be cradled and need to really support the head, but they're starting to do a little bit more of that and kind of look around and out around three months. And when they're in prone, they're starting to lift their head and keep their forearms propped up underneath of them. And then at four months, you should start to see some rolling from their stomach to their back. A lot of times, the first time they do it is entirely by accident. They're very top-heavy, that head, they kind of tip side to side, they kind of go looking for something, the head falls back, and they end up on their back. So a lot of times that first roll is completely by accident. Or babies that don't get a lot of exposure to tummy time and don't want to be there, they learn to get off of it really quickly. Yeah. I tell you what, babies are smart. They figure some mess <laughs> out quickly. Yes. Like, no, this yeah. is not for me. I'm rolling over. Mm-mm. And then by six months, you're starting to see some independent sitting emerging. Even if you're putting them in the sitting position on the floor and putting their hands down either on their legs or on the floor, they're starting to prop up and be able to sit a little bit. And they're starting to show signs of rolling from their back to their stomach. And this is also what I call like a beautiful stage when you can like sit them in one place and when they're sitting independently and they stay there because that period lasts for, I think, like maybe two hours. And um, and then like they're because once they start moving, baby, as you, you say it's, I say on, it's on. And you're like, <laughs> it's, it's a whole different world then. But to me, they're kind of like a little potted plant. You put them somewhere, and they stay there. And you can go to the kitchen, and they come back, and look, the baby's still in the same place, kind of like a potted plant. <laughs> yeah, and I really tell parents, once they mm. start being able to roll over, that means get up, get things baby-proofed because yeah. that lamp cord hanging down is yeah. going to get pulled off the table in, like, minutes. But there is a one brief period when they can sit, and they can't get out of sitting so there is like one brief, like I said, two-hour window where they're like a potted plant and you put them in sitting and they can't move. Not the rolling thing, but they can't like get out of sitting. So that's all they, you know, and they do. And I mean that with, with love, like the potted plant thing. Okay. And so then they figure out how to get out of sitting and then what? About nine months, those transitional skills are starting to emerge. They can get from their sitting position down to their tummy. They can get from the floor up to a sitting position. 
nine times out of ten, they're usually pushing up to a quadruped position and pushing them back into sitting. And then they'll start being able to reach up and pull the stand on different things. And around nine months, they're also starting to creep on their hands and knees. Sometimes people don't know the difference between creeping and crawling. Crawling is stomach is in contact with the floor. Creeping is they're up on hands and knees. Stomach is clear of the floor. Ho, 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 ho. Back the bus up. Because I've been calling it the wrong thing for how long? So creeping is what? Say it again. Creeping is tummy is not in contact with the floor. What? And crawling is yeah. what? Crawling is like an army crawl, like a commando crawl. Their tummy stays on the floor. Are you sure? I have this. <laughs> I've been calling it the opposite. Like, I'm not going to admit that. Oh, my. <laughs> I don't know. All right. I knew that. Moving on. That's right. I, I totally not been calling that. But it's important for babies to creep, correct? Yes. It, it's very important, not just from a gross motor standpoint, but from an occupational therapy standpoint. And I've learned this working so closely with OT as well. Creeping is what gets all their weight bearing through their hands. That's how mm-hmm. you develop your palmar arch and your grasp. And we see that kids that were not crawlers and didn't get put on the floor and went right to walking or didn't have a long time to crawl, they tend to need help with handwriting down the road. See? That's what happened to, um, that's, yep, that's, yes, I knew that. My, I was just thinking about my son. He didn't, he didn't creep or crawl. He just walked and that was a problem. But yes, moving on, not about, not about him or me, so, but it is important. So really, I think it, it is. There's reasons why you need to know so much about your other disciplines and work with your other mm-hmm. service providers. Well, and I think then it's another situation of looking at the whole child, assessing the whole child, and it all mushes together. One thing depends on another, depends on another. It's like a domino effect. It also ties into educating the parent because, mm-hmm. you know, they might be really excited about the child learning to walk, and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's a superstar. He's walking early, and he wants to walk, and he doesn't want to crawl. Well, let's go back and crawl because this is why it's important, and you're going to need it down the road to prevent other delays later in life. Okay, so then they're creeping, crawling, they're doing that, and then what happens? They start creeping over obstacles, they start cruising along furniture, so cruising is a mm-hmm. common term for they're holding onto the furniture, whether it be a couch or a coffee table, and they're starting to sidestep and move down the furniture while they're holding on. Then you get them lowering from the surface, so they mm-hmm. lower through that deep squat, bending the knees, not just falling away. That's teaching so much about where their body is in space, mm-hmm. and it's so important. And then starting to step with two hands held. We talked about that stepping response. It went away, and now it's starting to come back between 9 and 10 months. You're starting to see them take some steps. So if a child's not really lowering themselves slowly, you know, if they've been cruising, they're not really lowering themselves slowly to sitting position, you're saying they're less aware of their body in space. What are you kind of looking for there? You're looking for them to really bend their knees and use their quads to lower themselves down. But also, if they don't know where they are and they're not safe, like we're looking Mm. at safety too. Like, do they know where their body is in space right now to be able to stand up and keep their hands on the support? Or do they just let go and they're not sure where they are? And then, you know, I've also noticed too, that's one way that I sort of assess object permanence. Like from a speech-language perspective, if a child's playing with something and they're cruising along a table and they drop the toy, but it's out of sight for a second, if they look for the toy and then lower themselves down, then that's a good assessment. So a lot of times in an arena of Al, the PT will be assessing if they're, you know, cruising or how they're moving. That's a good way to get in other like little test things. So I test there to see about object yeah. permanence. 
sure. if they have that yet, sure. you know. Okay. Do you think the incidence of kids walking faster is increasing, Kirsty? Because it seems like babies 12 months, you know, doesn't have to be exactly, but it seems like a lot of babies that I see just out and about are walking earlier. I see more walking actually later. Huh. But I would say that it's twofold because, you know, we're seeing the norm now has shifted. They've actually shifted the standardized norm. So anywhere between 12 months, you're starting to see them walk unaided for about five steps. That's according to the Peabody. But it's not going to come up a delay until they're not walking after 15 months. Yeah. And I think a lot of that's because babies aren't getting put down on their tummy. Babies are being containerized because our lifestyle is we're always on the go. Their car seats, I call that a bucket. Yep. So they're in their bucket. They're in a bucket and they make buckets now they can hook to your shopping cart. So Mm -hmm. You could essentially have your baby in from the time you leave your house to the time you get home from the grocery store, two and a half hours or more. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. And God forbid the child's got an older sibling that's got to go places because then they're probably in it a little bit more. Yep. And that's where we see torticollis starting to happen and mm. a lot of other things. Kirsty, let's go ahead and clear up one thing. I don't want anybody to think just because they put their babies in a car seat or like a bucket, like I call it, the baby will have torticollis. Will you define torticollis? Tell everybody what it is. A torticollis, it used to be defined by having a lateral flexion component, so if they bring one ear to one shoulder and then a rotation component, they look like they have their head kind of cocked off to the side. And then what can develop is a flat spot on the back of their head, ears can become out of alignment, that's all because of a torticollis. But torticollis definition has shifted a little bit. So now it doesn't have to be a rotational component. It doesn't have to be only a lateral flexion component. It can be any combination in any direction of any one of those or multiple. But it often does result from positioning. So what happens? The baby's positioned in a certain way and then they stop moving their head another way? Is that what you're basically saying? Yeah, it can start as early as in the womb. And then what can happen is they have a preference and then that preference becomes more pronounced when they are positioned in different types of equipment such as car seats, swings, even for sleep in the bed. And so if parents aren't educated on what can happen and educated on positional techniques and how to alleviate that, then it can get worse and can cause developmental problems down the road. So we're not saying don't put babies in a swing or don't put babies in a car seat. Of course, we're not saying that. Use a car seat. Basically, what you're saying is give your baby some floor time and tummy time so they can move their bodies and have time to just sort of explore what their bodies can do and explore the environment, correct? Yes, correct. All right. So then, Kirsty, let's get back on track and back to what we were talking about. Wow. I just see very few kids throwing a ball underhand. Most of them do throw overhand at first, mm-hmm. um, but that's something to work on. Around 24 months, so we're talking two years of age, they start jumping, clearing their feet, mm-hmm. walking backwards, and starting to catch a ball around 25 to 26 months. Now, between two and three years, a lot of what's happening now is refined movement. Right. Because now they're up on their feet, they're exploring their environment. So around 30 months, some of the hallmarks are they're jumping down from surfaces and they're jumping with forward progression so they can jump like over a line on the floor. Or if you put colors out, they can jump from one color to the next. And then Mm -hmm. at three years old, they start walking up steps without a rail. And their ball skills are improving. So they're throwing and kicking about six to seven feet, and there's improved accuracy, and they're able to start hitting some targets. Yeah, a two-year-old running and moving and a three-year-old running and moving are very different. And I noticed 
I mean, I can't help but think like a speech therapist because what I do, I notice even with like my boys, when the younger one, they're not too different in age, but when the younger one got, so he was just over two, maybe closer to two and a half, that he could keep up with his older brother. And it's just because his motor movements had refined. And so even though he socially really wasn't, you know, there, you know, we're two and four, even though he socially really wasn't able to play like a four-year-old or his language wasn't up with his brothers, he could just physically keep up with them. And that was really all that mattered. He just could run uh-huh. after him, jump at, you know, physically, basically sort of keep up, you know, mostly. Yeah. And so yeah. it does affect social. So if you think about it like a big daycare class or mom's morning out class or just a play group, if the two-year-old isn't able to physically keep up with the rest of their peers, it will, if you're thinking about the whole child, start to impact social, language. There's a lot of other development, fine motor, just all development will be impacted. So getting in and doing the gross motor and physical therapy earlier versus later is key so they can just physically keep up with their friends because they learn so much just by moving or family, not just friends, but family too, you know? Very much. Yeah. So I think that's just something nice to be reminded of or to think about when you're evaluating the whole child, think about physically being up to where they need to go. So answer this for me, Kirsty. You know, and I know we probably covered this a little bit earlier in for the developmental, but do you recommend kids this age when they're learning to walk to wear shoes or not to wear shoes? Not before you're old. Oh. Uh, they really don't need to be in shoes because, again, it goes back to treating the whole child also. There's so much sensory input that happens through the feet. Mm, yeah, you're right, yep. And so even at a home, look at how many textures you have in your home, different area rugs, different carpets, different flooring, tile, wood. All of that is sensory coming in through the feet. And we're just, as a society, just so many different sensory experiences that children used to get, they don't get those anymore. And the shoes are so cute, but they don't really have to have them. They're not necessary or really the Uh best thing even. No, a lot of kids go in shoes because they're in a daycare and it's required or they're somewhere where they have to be in shoes. Well, what's your thought on like an exercise or a walk or whatever? Do you recommend those or not? I know there's some therapists out there, some PTs that are like, absolutely not. You should never use them. They're so bad for the hips. They're so dividend. And I'm like, you know what? It's case by case. Because Mm. as a mom, as a real person, I'm like, you know what? I need 15 minutes of sanity and I've got to get a shower. And that kid, in order to be safe, has to go in something. Yes. (laughs) Or I might lose my mind. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yes. (laughs) I understand that. Um, Yeah. I think they have their place. I'm definitely a huge fan of the floor is the best equipment you could ever have. You need a floor and you need a blanket and you don't need anything fancy. But if that's going to give you 15 minutes to get a shower, then there's a place for it. But if you're misusing the equipment and you're leaving them in there, you know, hours on end or they don't have good hip stability or their head control is not that great and you're putting them in there, well, then you can cause more problems. So I think it's something that you need to explore on an individual basis with a therapist. And then if somebody was, a mother was concerned or, uh, you know, about them meeting some of these milestones and things that we've talked about, the best place to go first is your pediatrician and talk to them about some of their concerns? Yeah, and I think you just really need to advocate for your own child because sometimes if the mentality is, oh, it'll get better, oh, they'll outgrow it, but a therapist is going to be able to give you some tips and cues and things to change day-to-day activities Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes as a parent, you just need that reinforcement that what you're doing is the right thing. Yeah, you're right. That's good. Because if it's your first child, it's like what I say all the time. Your first kid, unfortunately, is your kind of your guinea pig kid. I mean, you know, that's what I, he is, you don't really know what you're doing, you know, really. And so sometimes you just need a sort of pat on the back, like, yes, this is the right thing. Or do this also. Right. Yeah, you do. Right. As a mom, you feel like you need to know it all and do all the right things. You want to do all the right things for your child. And sometimes you just don't know because they're your guinea pig kid. So anyway, one more question, though. How about like, um, I know we talked about babysitting and that kind of thing. Do you like bumbo seats? I know those are popular sometimes, but some parents have said, oh, well, I'm worried about putting them in a bumbo seat. They may fall over. What's your thought about a bumbo seat? I like them, actually. Depending on the child, again, it's very child-specific, but I think they have their place, just like anything. I think that it sits them down really far in there, so even with the little ones that are starting to have some head control, it gives them another position in space. It gets them out of a swing, because I'm not a huge fan of a swing. I think they have their place, too, but for letting them sit in there for children that have torticollis and are prone to it because they're on their backs a lot and, you know, we have back to sleep because of the SIDS program, that gives them another position and space to get upright. It gets, yeah. They come with trays. They can use their hands for fine motor development, exploration of toys, taking them to their mouths. So, again, I think they have their place, but always to be used with supervision just like anything. Yeah, I agree. I'm not a physical therapist and I defer to the PT, but sometimes I've been asked by parents, especially for feeding kids in the home, and I always say mm-hmm. to just put them on the floor. I always say don't put them on a counter, don't put anything up high, just on the floor. But then I also defer to the PT and I said, but unless the PT has told you not to use these, and but I like to sometimes start off feeding kids, not first in those, but after, you know, once they're sitting up, of course, hold their head up because you wouldn't do that. That's that's a feeding podcast. That's not this podcast. I always tell parents to use them on the floor, but supervised, supervised. All right. That was good. I learned some stuff. I learned something creeping and crawling. Huh. <laughs> New stuff that I did not know. And so I appreciate it, Kirsty. Thanks again for being here with us and thanks for doing this. Really, it's always good when you're involved with it. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. So thanks everybody for listening and stay tuned for another podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 